The place stank. A queer, mingled stench that only the ice-buried cabins of an Antarctic camp know. Compounded of reeking human sweat and the heavy, fish oil stench of melted seal blubber. An overtone of liniment combated the musty smell of sweat and snow-drenched furs. The acrid odor of burnt cooking fat and the animal, not unpleasant smell of dogs, diluted by time, hung in the air. Lingering odors of machine oil contrasted sharply with the taint of harness dressings and leather. Yet somehow, through all that reek of human beings and their associates, dogs, machines, and cooking, came another taint. It was a queer, neck-ruffling thing, a faintest suggestion of an odor alien among the smells of industry and life. And it was a life smell. But it came from the thing that lay bound with cord and tarpaulin on the table, dripping slowly, methodically onto the heavy planks, dank and gaunt under the unshielded glare of the electric light. Alright, that was the opening music from The Thing from Another World, released in 1951, and also the opening few paragraphs from Who Goes There, the short story by John W. Campbell Jr. that this movie is based on. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews at www.classicmoviereviews.net. Or you can find us in iTunes, just search for Classic Movie Reviews. Or in Facebook, just search for Classic Movie Reviews. And thank you to all of you that have left comments or likes or shares in Facebook and in iTunes. We appreciate it. Uh, I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm coming to you from cloudy and cold Seattle. It's definitely October here now. This is uh, Bob Johnson in uh, Los Angeles. We're getting close to our 60th episode, I think. The Thing from Another World went to as a 10-year-old and got scared to death when uh, they opened the door and the thing was on the other side. Really, really a good movie. It's imprinted itself on me forever. So much to say about this. Parts of it were filmed in and around my hometown in Montana. Anytime they're outside in, that would have been uh, near my hometown. Plenty of snow in the winter. Some trivia on the on the movie, they spent a long time trying to come up with the right monster look. And finally, when they came up with the one that James Arness wore, uh, he and I think the person that designed it went out for a ride around Los Angeles. And they knew that it, they, they had it right when people, stoplights were freaking out when they saw this monster so clever that they would do that. <laughs> That's cool. How old were you when you saw this movie in the theater? I was 10. The movie came out in 1951, and uh, I went to it. Probably today I would not have been uh, going to that, but it was in the days they didn't rate uh, movies like they do today. I think I was too young to see it because when they opened that door, I had to hide my eyes for most of the rest of the movie. Yeah, that that actually is still scary today. The the, the script in this movie is really, really well done, and, and I love how the actors deliver the lines because they talk over each other and they are talking really fast and it and it feels like they're just 
there you know it doesn't feel like you're watching them in a movie and i really like that part about the the script and the directing and the the acting the other thing i like is that none of the actors were really you know big stars it wasn't like a john wayne or somebody like that in the part and and i think that adds to the story and i also really enjoyed the mix of humor that would come in about the movie for example at the beginning when they're uh in the club and it's like it looks like it's 30 below outside the officer's club and, and uh, Kenneth Toby's character gets called to the general's office and the general is just beside himself that he wouldn't close, that Toby didn't close the door soon enough and he was grumpy. Come in. Close the door. Freddie, do you suppose the Pentagon could send us a revolving door? Could be, sir. We got 10 girls of pith helmets last week. And then I, uh, just another one that sticks in my mind is when Toby and the crew take off to go up to find out what's wrong at the North Pole. And they're talking about these regulations and the co-pilot, after this long discussion of the regulations, <laughs> yeah. says, oh yes, that one. I'd forgotten about it. Pat, I think we made a mistake. What do you mean? You ever read this? Department of Defense, Office of Public Information, Washington, D.C., December 27, 1949. Bulletin 629-49 regarding item 6700, extract 75,131. The Air Force has discontinued investigating and evaluating reported flying saucers on the basis that there is no evidence. Probably make you a general for destroying evidence that they're wrong. The Air Force said that all evidence indicates that the reports of unidentified flying objects are the result of one misinterpretation of various conventional objects. Didn't look very conventional to me. Second, a mild form of mass hysteria. That'd be when General Fogarty got to shaking hands with that thing in the ice. What are the other reasons? Third, that they're jokes. Why don't you say the number of that bulletin was? 629-49, item 6700, extract 75,131. Oh. Oh, that one. <laughs> and then he, he's so serious uh, so one of the funny things that I liked about the movie was this, uh, the line about the super carrot where did you find the arm? it was partly under what I'm wondering could yeah. dogs tear off an arm? this kind of an arm be careful doctor those barbs or whatever they are are very sharp seems to be a sort of chitinous substance something between a beetle's back and a rose thorn thorn fingered huh amazingly strong very effective if used as a weapon <laughs> oh, very, you don't have to worry about that not with an arm off and out in that cold he's dead now he got along all right in a block of ice for over 24 hours he's pretty spry for a guy with 12 dogs on him he sure After was losing an arm in my mind amazing isn't it amazingly strong strange Sure. That is uh, blood on the hand, isn't it, Doctor? Yes, but not his blood. Probably from one of the dogs. There's no blood in the arm, no animal tissue. Doctor Stern, do you have a look at this under the microscope? Mm -hmm. No, Mr. Scott, I doubt very much if it can die, as we understand dying. Cats. Yes. Well, Doctor? No arterial structure indicated. No nerve endings visible. Porous, unconnected cellular growth. Just a minute. Imagine. Just man. a minute, Doctor. It sounds like you're trying to describe a vegetable. I am. Are you getting all of this? Oh, for Pete's sake. Quiet, Mr. You know, Doctor, 
That could be why the bullets fired by Sergeant Barnes had no seeming effect. That's right. Merely holes drilled into vegetable matter. This green fluid here, like plant sap. We'll probably find it has a sugar base. Please, doctor, I've got to ask this. Scott? It sounds like, well, just as though you're describing some form of super carrot. That's nearly right, Mr. Scott. This carrot, as you call it, has constructed an aircraft capable of flying some millions of miles through space, propelled by a force as yet unknown to us. I just love, love that. They call the monster the, oh, the super right, carrot. right. So in my mind, I'm imagining this giant orange thing with, like, green hair. So an ad for vegetables. The music in this is outstanding. Dmitry Tiomkin did the music, and when they finally go out from the... Uh, North Pole base, and they do that, uh, they stand in a circle around the aircraft. The music that's used in that is some of the best I think I've ever heard that's mashed up with the story. Oh yeah, the music is awesome. Dr. Chapman, could an airplane melt that much ice? One of our own jets generates enough heat to warm a 50-story office building. Part of an airfoil, probably a stabilizer of some sort. It's an airplane, all right. Boris, can you tell what metal that is? I'll need some tools. Barnes, bring some tools. Hey, it's down pretty deep over here. I can't see anything but a dark mass. It's deeper over here. Captain, may I suggest that we spread out and try to determine the size and shape? Right. Spread out, everybody. We're going to try to figure out the shape of this thing. Here's the tools, sir. finally got one we found a flying saucer it's so good it may it, it makes it even scarier because it's it sounds like it's something from another world it really does it does indeed and i, I was also intrigued by every time they got close to a, a trauma or they'd been outside trying to find out what was going on with the thing they were always coming back in and and uh, being served coffee yeah they must have had coffee served three four times in the film uh, one of the, one of the funny things I noticed in the credits is that they had a ladies' wardrobe person who was in charge of the ladies' wardrobe. That was the actual title of of that person's job. Boy, have things changed <laughs> in sixty some years. And and I thought, why are the why are the women there? I mean, not that I I, th- I think you know obviously women should go on these missions like this, but I was like, why are these women there? Because it seemed like uh, all that she did was take dictation and notes from. Uh, the scientists, and serve coffee. It was kind of like so stereotypical to me. It, she, uh, the, it also added to the uh, romance between uh, the the chief pilot... Captain Henry. Captain Henry and, and uh, the woman, because apparently they'd had a romance. I think uh, her name was Nikki in the movie. What does that boogeyman on a cake of ice really mean? I don't know, Nikki. What does it mean that we're going to start having visitors from other worlds, other planets, dropping in on us? Do we have to return the call, or... I know. 
Yesterday I'd said it was crazy. I say it's crazy now. Other people think so too. Forget it. Tomorrow it all seemed different. I suppose so. I like the way you handle this whole mess, Pat. Well, I just as soon not. You know, it's funny. I'm glad I was here. I am too. You're much nicer when you're when you're not mad. Sounds promising. About that business of beginning over again. Well, uh, I think I'll buy you a drink this time. I think you've earned it. That is, if you want one. You can tie my hands if you want them. That might not be such a bad idea. You mean that? Well, you suggested All it. All right, I'll bring a rope. <laughs> that was part of that. Now, a little bit of background on the movie. It was produced by uh, Howard Hawks and, and some other people. I believe that's correct. Let me see here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Howard Hawks. And his, yeah. he had a production company, Winchester Pictures Corporation. I imagine it was named that way because he did a lot of westerns. And he had a great, that was a great title card for his production company, I got to say. Yes, it, it really it, it was. It was like so uh, not what I was expecting before a science fiction horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, the opening with the uh, reveal of the title of the movie is also uh, scary and well done. Oh, that's so well done. And they pretty much copied that exactly in the John Carpenter uh, version. It was distributed by RKO Radio Pictures, and it was just uh, about an hour and a half long. And I don't know what the what the box office was, eight, but when it first came out, it, it grossed about two million dollars, which was quite well, or quite good in uh, 1951. Even though I was scared out of my wits, I thought the sets were really well done too. I mean, the the exterior shots, like you said, that were filmed in Montana, looked looked really good, uh, and they blended well with the. I guess they were probably studio shots of kind of the out uh, buildings, and um, the interiors were well done, and it really made you feel like you were in a. Uh, a station in the Arctic. Uh, I read one misstatement on the internet, at least I think it's a misstatement. It, it, it said on this one article that the location scenes were filmed in Glacier Park, but uh, that oh. that's nowhere near where they were filming because when you look at them with the old DC-3 or uh, the military equivalent numbering, and it's flying around over the uh, snow and all, that's central Montana. Glacier Park would be... A lot more mountains, right? Yeah, much yeah different uh, topography and then kind of one other uh interesting note william self played corporal barnes in the movie and he's the one who is sitting there uh when the uh, electric blanket melts away the ice, <laughs> and, he, uh, yeah. and he gets up and he runs out screaming well william self went on to be a hugely successful executive at 20th century fox over a long period of time produced many many television programs and movies I was reading his obituary, and uh, the man was uh, amazing in what he did. But he started out as an actor. He's got one of the better scenes in the movie when he, when that shadow comes up over him. Captain Henry! The map, bro. Doctor Chapman. Where's the captain? I've got to tell him. I've got to tell him that thing's alive. I saw it, sir. Chase me. That thing's alive. It's not dead. It's Captain Henry. When he looks, he turns around and he's like, "Oh my God, yes. what is that? <laughs> it's alive." I tell you, one of, one of my favorite lines in the movie comes right before that scene, or or pretty soon before that scene, when um, the sergeant tells uh, the captain uh, that. Oh, captain. Yes, sergeant. Could I see you for a minute, sir? 
Sure. I don't like to bother you like this, Captain, but it's about Lieutenant McPherson sitting in there with that thing in the block of ice. Getting nervous. Well, he wouldn't want me to tell you, sir, but he's having kittens. I haven't heard him squawk like this since we were over Reagan. Really? You see, sir, the ice is clearing up, and we can see the thing pretty good now. It's got crazy hands and no hair, and the eyes, well, they're open, and they look like they can see. Bob, I haven't heard you. Oh, it's got me too, sir, and I wasn't in there, Besides that, it's pretty cold. I got the lieutenant an electric blanket. Good. And that was a great scene, and it, it really did a great job of foreshadowing and uh, g- getting you ready to see this creature. And it it uh, was uh, a similar description in the uh, in the novel that we read, thing from uh, Who Goes There, because they described the uh, the space uh, creature as they as they see him through the ice. I guess my all-time favorite scene, though, is when they finally discover that this thing is running around loose and it feeds on blood, and they decide they'll go down to the greenhouse and find out if they can see it. And that scene where they open the door. Wait for me, Pat. I want to get a picture. greenhouse is an outside door. I can get out that way. Captain, we can get to it from here through the generator room. You do go with him. You mean you want us to go in? Seal the door with lumber, oil drums, anything you can find. That's better. Easy now. You don't have to get there. Pat, I want a picture. You get back with the rest. Don't be silly. It'll cost you a drink, Scott. Oh, I'm a beer. Ready, Bob? No, but go ahead and open it. Get something to prop this door, quick! Something sure enough to get under this boat. Did you picture, Scotty? No, you were in the way. And the door was not long enough. Want me to open it again? No. I love that kind of humor because it, it just adds to the tension. Oh, and then and then right after that, the uh, I think it was the sergeant who's the one that had the automatic rifle. Uh, another one of the crewmen comes up and says, hey, next time when you're shooting, can you aim a little higher? And the sergeant <laughs> says, sorry, my, I, my mind was a little, uh, <laughs> I was a little busy <laughs> to think, think about that. I think that was Dewey Martin that had aimed it. Not high enough. He was the crew chief. Okay, yeah, Dewey Martin, yeah. Uh, there's so many people in this that, you know, you see you see them in movies. At least I, when I look at them, I say, okay, who is that guy? Because they, they really weren't top, you know, A-list actors at the time. And then my favorite one is James Arness as The Thing, long before he was Marshall Dillon. He's so creepy, freaky looking. And they, they don't show him very much. It's, he's always sort of in shadow, but... You get enough of an idea of what he looks like that you're like, wow. Especially in that ending scene when the doctor um, who wants to try to communicate with the monster. Oh, Dr. Carrington, yes. Yeah, Dr. Carrington is right up next to the thing. And the thing is looking at him like, why is this animal talking to me? This is like, it'd be like a cow trying to talk to a person or something, you know? (laughs) It's like... 
I know. This I, is my dinner. <laughs> and he swats him away like a mosquito. Well, the thing, uh, the thing I also liked about the thing is, <laughs> it it has kind of a humanoid look. It it it's not like totally unbelievable in terms of how the thing looks. To me, it was like the best way they could have captured this essence of this uh, creature from another world. Just a couple things that I noted uh, as I was watching it. The fact that it feeds on blood is, I think that's a kind of a, a callback to the short story because it, it, it all comes down to the blood in the short yes. story. And that's kind of how they figure out who's who and, and they're able to defeat the, the, the alien. Uh, and then the at about an hour and nine minutes into the movie, they're trying to find the thing and they know the thing is inside somewhere but they're not sure so and they figured out that the geiger counter will go off as the thing gets closer to them and it starts ticking and ticking a little bit faster and ticking a little bit faster and then pretty soon it's like just going crazy 1.4 keep moving around you guys keep it quiet i remember the first execution i ever covered bruce snyder and judd gray Get a picture of that, Scotty? No, they didn't allow cameras, but one, one guy... point six, going up fast. Move back till he sees us. Give him a chance to get a look. Leave him in to reach that switch. Stay away from the walls when he hits the juice. Everybody got rubber boots on? Yes, sir. One point eight. I thought I heard something. It's getting near the top. That reminded me of Aliens. Remember in Aliens when they had that radar thing that would go oh, off right. when the aliens would yes. come close? Yep. And I thought, wow, that that there's got to be some connection there. It was like almost exactly the same kind of a setup. The uh, notes I was reading on the film, and I'll just kind of paraphrase this. It's uh, it Appearing in a small role was George Fenneman, and George Fenneman was Dr. Redding in the film. And Mr. Fenneman later gained a lot of fame as Groucho Marx's announcer on the uh, popular TV quiz show and radio show, You Bet Your Life. And Fenneman said that he had difficulty in the filming because of the overlapping dialogue. It was hard to keep track of his lines and how they fit together. And it was in later films, uh, Robert Altman's movies, as I've watched them over the years, they have that same overlapping dialogue, which makes things more realistic though i really like that. yeah that that was that was one thing that i noticed right away that i really really liked was the was the really quick fire dialogue and the and talking over each other because that's that's exactly how people talk you know they get excited they talk faster they talk over each other and and it was so sharp the like the witty dialogue and the the the, the subtle jokes that they were cracking it was just great and Beyond the special effects or the alien or the story, that alone makes this a really excellent movie for me. So do you want to, like, how do you want to finish the, the last part of this? Do you want to go through the plot for a few minutes and then we can talk about maybe, um, as we're doing that, what our favorite scenes are? You've already mentioned your favorite scene, but I had a couple more that I wanted to talk about. Uh, sure. Uh, do you want me to do just a quick synopsis of the plot? Yeah, go ahead. All right, here we go. The uh, the uh, main storyline in the thing has to do with some unknown object that's landed near the uh, North Pole, and uh, our Air Force heroes, led by Captain Henry, are dispatched to 
the uh, outpost on the north at, near the North Pole where the scientists are working on different research. They then gather up some of the scientists and off they go to uh, locate this object, which no one knows what it is, but they get there and they realize that it's a flying saucer. And as they try to extract the the, uh, saucer from the ice, they manage to uh, destroy it with using thermite. Um, But they find that there's a a person-looking creature that's buried in the ice close to the this uh, flying saucer so they say okay well one of the scientists in a joking manner says you want to use more thermite <laughs> and they uh, decide no we'll cut it out of the ice and take it back to the uh, north pole station where they put it in a room and uh, it's kind of cold in there because they want to keep the ice from melting but one of the uh, Air Force staff members puts an electric blanket to cover up the creature, not realizing that the electric blanket is, blanket is plugged in. Ice melts, creature awakens, off we go. <laughs> He's outside taking on nine sled dogs. They're firing at him. They find the creature's arm laying in the snow, so they figure, well, now he's not going to survive in this weather. Uh, little do they know that it's a giant carrot. Super carrot. Super carrot. <laughs> so then more more story unfolds. The uh, creature lives on the blood of the uh, people or the dogs, whoever's got, whoever's close. And they get into a, a, a search and destroy mission trying to find the creature. And the creature's finding them. All kinds of happenings go on. It's in the greenhouse. The creature's in the greenhouse. And it's coming down the hall to get them in a room right off of the uh, mess area, and they almost destroy the creature, but they practically burn down the station. But <laughs> aha! Since it is a giant vegetable, they figure that what they'll do is... Cook it. They'll cook it. Cook it. <laughs> they'll cook it. Then there's a great scene in there. Well, what do you do with a vegetable? You fry it, you bake it. And you boil it. Oh, you boil it. They hook up this mighty electrical system, and they all gather in the uh, one place that's still warm, the uh, electrical heating room, and the monster comes down the hall, and bingo, they are successful. I thought it was uh, cool in that scene when uh, the, the, the thing kind of looks at them and looks at the ground, and, and he kind of has this idea that maybe this is a trap, but I don't think yes. he I don't think he believes that these creatures could actually get him, like... Because he's like this, you know, super being from outer space. But they they do trick him into stepping onto the the electric trap. That helped when one of them uh, threw an axe. I think it was an axe down the hall that made the uh, creature get onto the main walkway where they electrocuted him. Yeah, that's sort of a synopsis, and we will have to include the ending line from the uh, journalist when he goes on the radio. Oh, that that ending speech is is so great. Uh, For a 10-year-old myself, coming out of that movie theater, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to watch every night for the rest of my life. And now, before giving you the details of the battle, I bring you a warning. Every one of you listening to my voice, tell the world, tell this to everybody wherever they are. Watch the skies everywhere. Keep looking. Keep watching the skies. (laughs) 
So you and left I, the theater left and you're like <laughs> I was terrified. It was a Saturday after matinee, a mat a Saturday afternoon matinee. Me and my friends and I I swear that's all we talked about for the next month was that scary movie and why did we go and should we have gone? <laughs> do we want to go again? <laughs> <laughs> it was like today, you know, when they have those summer blockbusters. Yeah. What about your favorite scene? Uh, well, this one made me laugh pretty hard. It was at the beginning when Nikki and the captain were kind of getting together in, in like his room and she had tied him up. I thought that was pretty kinky for 1951. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <it was. laughs> Our captain. Yeah. And he's such a straight shooter, like a deadpan that... I, I mean, he delivered those lines about being tied up, or you know, it was it was very uh, well played by him. Uh, the next that one, is a good line. The next scene was when you uh, realize that the electric blanket is melting the ice, and uh, I'm thinking to myself, what idiot puts an electric blanket on this ice block and doesn't realize that it's turned on? It's like. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and then the scene when the the scene when the dogs are attacking him, that was so uh cool. I mean, he's out there, it's a it's like a blizzard. These dogs are going nuts. Uh he's throwing dogs around. <laughs> like how did they do that? That was so cool. And I I, I think there were 9 dogs. Yeah, there was a there's a few of them, a lot of them. When we find that dog in the in in the uh, greenhouse and he opens up that chest and the dog falls out that was that was a good jump scare and and also the music goes very intense right at that moment when he opens up that box dr carrington you were right the lock's been forced and bent back into position again the key's gone someone has entered and gone and locked the door from the from the outside Look, see how it glistens in the light it's a smear of blood sap from the wounded arm you don't suppose open it please Sled dogs. Not even cold yet. But it doesn't seem kind of shrunken. Is there any blood in there? None. No blood. No blood. Its blood has been drained. Everything falls right into line. What could be more natural for a being of its kind than seeking out the only open earth within miles? It came here for refuge, heard us, and ran. It's been here. It'll come back again. Yeah, and then and then later in the movie when Doctor Carrington is growing the seed pods and and he asks one of the other doctors, "Do you want to listen to the seed pod?" and he puts the stethoscope up to it and I think his comment was, "It sounds like a small uh, a baby crying when it's hungry." And I can only imagine what that would sound like. It was so oh, creepy. No kidding. That that the scientists that listened to that wanted nothing to do with it. He took the headphones off. Uh, I think around that time, yeah, it was right around that time, there's a line, uh, he's a stranger in a strange land. And I think that's a line from a famous science fiction novel, Stranger in a Strange Land. And I thought that might be a call out to other science fiction uh, works that were happening around that time. Well, I bet it was. I, I remember the line very well, yeah. And then uh, there was a part where they all come back from searching for the thing out in the, the frozen wastelands. And one of the guys says, were you scared? Uh, no, not after we saw it was just a polar bear. <laughs> I 
running into a polar yeah. bear is preferable to running into this thing out in the in the snow. It's out there, not bothered by the weather at all. And then, the, of course, the the money shot, which is the one that you like so much when they open the door. And I was like, holy crap, oh. it's still scary, even to this day. It is. I wonder how many times they had to shoot that. Maybe just once. I don't know. They... There's like one little thing about that that makes it so great. When his hand is stuck in the door jam, and then he pulls his, the thing pulls his hand back through the door jam, and the door jam just splinters. And that gives yes. you a sense that this thing is just incredibly strong. Because all the, I mean, he's not hurt at all by his hand being jammed up into that, you know, between the door and the and the door jam. Not not a bit. Well, I I can't do a podcast without referencing our favorite American Film Institute. <clears throat> now, this one of their many lists, it's the AFI's One Hundred Years, One Hundred Thrills list. <laughs> How many lists do they have? I don't know. I I haven't gone to their website to look it up. It must be many. But the thing from another world is 87th on the 100 years, 100 thrills. It makes me wonder, what are the 86 in front of it? Wow, I would have said it would be in the top 20. Interesting. I would say, yeah, that in my list, it'd be probably in the top 10. Yeah. And then the AFI's 100 years, 100 heroes and villains. The thing has was nominated as a villain, but it doesn't say if it was on that list of 100 or not. Hmm. We should make it a regular part of each podcast to reference the AFI or hey, the British Film Institute. I, I think it is a regular part of the podcast. <laughs> <clears throat> I guess it is. Yeah, I never, I never uh, go through one of our reviews without looking that up. If so I, I wanted to talk about what was the same between the short story, this movie, and the John Carpenter movie. I, I, I thought of three things. Uh, one is the fact that the spaceship is buried in the ice and it gets destroyed when they try to excavate it. And, that, and they, they find some kind of creature beside the spaceship. So that was the same. Blood is involved in all three. It's, it's pretty integral to the, to the plot in terms of how the blood works into the story and then there's a line uh, uh an hour and 19 minutes into this movie where one of the guys says what if it can read our minds and that was a big part of the short story because it was implied that the thing in the short story could read their minds and knew all their mm -hmm. plans and there was no way they were going to be able to defeat it and i i think that that was also part of the john carpenter movie where it could take over and it knew everything that you knew and that it could also know things that the people around it were thinking. So um, those were three things. But there's also a lot of differences uh, between the three. But I I was, uh, again, just surprised how much the short story was more like the John Carpenter movie. And this one was great. I mean, it's a great take on the, on the, the story, but it's, it is quite a bit different in some of the major parts of the plot. It is. I, I remember reading that Mr. Letterer, who was uh, the primary writer of, of this movie, The Thing from Another World, used that as a benchmark, the no, the novel, but but uh, changed it around a bit, I suppose, to fit 1951 kind of sensibilities and that kind of thing. But I like both the movies. The one difference uh, between the, the novel and the uh, 1982, the thing, 
is the ending. In the movie, in the, uh, the 1982 movie, you're not quite sure how it ends. They're sitting outside after the whole place is burned down, and you just assume they're going to both freeze to death. Yeah, that's true. But in the novel, they actually eliminate the, the thing. And in this movie, you, you get the idea that they've destroyed it as well. Although, yeah. you you don't know if they've destroyed all of the seed pods, right? Like, what if there was a seed pod stuck out in, in the snow somewhere that could, that you survived. know, be, that survived? But you're, you're not quite 100% sure about that. Man, that, that feeds the, uh, I'll, I'll not be able to sleep now for the next week. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to 1951. What was your rating on the, on the, uh, the thing from another world? Oh, it's a 10, of course. I, I couldn't find anything in the movie that I was like, oh, why did they do that? The only thing that I wish that was different, I wish that they had made the female characters more integral to the story. Like they, sh I wish they would have made one of the yeah. scientists a, a female instead of sort of like these assistants. And I know that's uh, the time, 1951, but uh, that's kind of my general dissatisfaction with how female uh characters are portrayed in some of these movies i agree and also the diversity of the cast is is uh, is uh missing in in the in this movie yeah but i mean given that and, and understanding that it's of its time i i would give it a 10 i gave it a 10 too and probably every time i see that it's going to be on turner classic movies i make sure i watch it i never get tired of watching it i think now that i can actually Say the lines right along with the actors. <laughs> really, that <laughs> fast, huh? <laughs> Do you have you heard any rumors that it's going to be remade again? It's it's a perfect movie and novel to be made again and again. Well, I yeah, haven't but, read anything about that, but no, it was remade uh, just a few years ago. <clears throat> oh, you're right, two thousand eleven. You're and it, right. I, it it, it uh, it's a it's a it's it's a prequel to the John Carpenter movie, um, and. I watched the behind-the-scenes of this 2011 version, and they referenced scenes in the John Carpenter movie so that when... There's there's one in particular that really stuck out to me. There's a scene in this movie where uh, there's an axe fight between one of the guys and, and the creature, and the axe gets stuck in the door jam uh, in the hallway. And when... Uh, Kurt Russell is out looking at what happened at that other uh, station in the Arctic. Uh, there's a, they, he goes down this hallway and there's an axe in the door jam. And it, it, it was from that battle scene in this movie. And so they really did a good job of tying the two together. I'm going I'm, I'm to have to watch that uh, uh, 2011. I had completely forgotten that it was made. Yeah, it's, it's actually really good. I, I enjoyed it, but... Uh, it's it's pretty special effects heavy, you know. It's like they really went crazy with the special effects on the thing, and I, I almost kind of prefer the somewhat cheesy but still awesome uh, special effects in the 1982 version because <laughs> they just yes they were so well done. Even though they're all practical effects, uh, they look great still. Well, so. that wraps up our review of the thing from another world. I, I showed some amount of restraint. Since it's one of my favorite movies ever. What uh, recommendation do you have for next podcast? Well, I would like to see if maybe we could uh, close the month out with uh, Dracula, the Bela Lugosi version of Dracula, because we've talked about 
uh, Frankenstein. We've talked about the creature from the Black Lagoon, you know. The but I'd like to maybe do Dracula as the last one of the month. I uh, throw into the hopper one of my favorite movies, The Haunting, from 1963. Yeah, that was on my list too. So let's do that one, The Haunting, and then I'm kind of leaning toward The Omen because that's one heck of a scary scary movie and i i think that'd be appropriate <laughs> i hear the dogs in the background are barking their approval yes they they concur so they concur so we i, I agree the omen so we have the haunting the omen the original dracula from i believe 1931 we're missing one one uh or movie for uh october then if we've got the haunting the omen and the double feature we'll have to come up with something good Oh, because we have five. We have five weeks. <laughs> yeah, there's there's five weeks. Yeah, I was just looking. Well, let's here. do the haunting next week, and then we'll do the okay. omen the week after, and then we'll have a surprise for the for that fourth week, and then the last week will be Dracula. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. This is Matt Johnson coming to you from Seattle, and Bob Johnson uh, in Los Angeles, wishing you all great movie watching. going to put like a you know on the old days on these microphones because you can see kind of how big it is they on the uh, networks they'd have like nbc us here or cbs i was going to put something on there but i couldn't figure out what it would be you know like rmj or something like that oh that's a good idea you should do that or a or a visual <laughs> but i Put our I logo. Could we could get both. our logo. We could get our logo printed on a sticker, and you could put it on there. And put it right. <laughs> look how big. Look how big that thing is. I know. That's that's impressive.